Today's episode of Gospel Riot is brought to you by Relight. Relight is a free Reformed Theology and Bible Study web app. It's a project made by a husband and wife team named David and Sarah. They're confessionally reformed. What does that mean? Well, Relight's going to help you understand what that means. First of all, Relight is free. The resources are in the public domain, and the creators want to keep as much of the content free as possible so that more people can discover and study reformed resources. What is reformed? Again, uh, Relight is also unique from other Bible study apps because it aims to help you study confessions, catechisms, and eventually systematic theology and more. So give Relight a try for free at Relight.app. That's R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot A-P-P. Relight.app. I don't know. The world's kind of gone a little crazy. I don't know if you've noticed. And I've had this this idea for a show for a while to call it Gospel Riot. And the idea is, you know, uh, actually fighting back, doing something um, with it with a zeal um, to ca- almost almost seemingly chaotically to take over. And now all of a sudden, the the name has a more on the nose context because there's just riots happening in the streets, uh, and so it's, it's kind of wild. So we know what a riot is. We, we're seeing them on TV. And I think that uh, the the scriptures are encouraging us to have that same kind of zeal, that same kind of spirit. These people are fighting for something. They're fighting for something they care a lot about. Uh, maybe I mean, you know, I don't, I don't. That might not necessarily be true in all cases. They might just be bored. Uh, but uh, we we should have this zeal behind us, and we should be fighting for something. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for our king, and our king has. Uh, souls in this world that have that are not yet bowing the knee to him. There's this phrase that people use. Uh, it comes out of Matthew eleven twelve, talking about uh, the the kingdom being taken by violence, uh, and people say that we should be taking the kingdom by storm, and that's that's kind of the the catchphrase. That's kind of the subtitle of Gospel Riot: uh, taking the kingdom by storm. So that riotous, uh, zealous. Uh, passionate thing. That's that's what this this show is about. So that means I want to encourage evangelism. I want to encourage uh, engaging the culture through apologetics, through um, through better theology, through better understanding what the gospel is uh, for you, and and how to share it too. Um, so that's that's sort of the baseline thing that we're driving toward to to encourage, uh, maybe equip. Uh, the people who are listening to get out there and do something for Jesus to uh, make a difference for the kingdom, to take the kingdom by storm, uh, to be more uh, 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 single-minded in our lives uh, that we, uh, we, we see. I, I think the time we live in gives us a little more desperation, a little more uh, recognition that this isn't just about comfort. This isn't just about uh, the petty things in life, but there are more important things at, at stake here. So let's get out there and do something for Jesus. And I want to have guests on that will uh, will encourage us to take the kingdom by storm. So in this first episode, first things first, we got to talk about who God is and the distinction between who God is and who we are. 
This is foundational stuff for understanding uh, the necessity of the gospel, the necessity of evangelism, all those things. We got to start with who God is and how we are different than God is. The creator-creation distinction. Today on Gospel Riot. Welcome to Gospel Riot. I'm Les Lanfear. Uh, joining me on the show today is uh, a, a good friend of mine. I'll put an asterisk there, and uh, my guest can help clarify if that's a, a good description of our relationship. Uh, he's a an author. He's an apologist, Dr. James White. Thank you, Dr. White, for joining me. It's good to be with you. You know, starting a, a webcast is is a really countercultural type thing right now because there's just there's almost not a out there. Yeah, it's scarce. Nobody's doing it. <laughs> Uh, so you, I mean, you're the, you're the, the premier guy doing this, right? You're doing radio way back in the day. Well, radio. Yeah. But then, uh, we, we started doing real audio, uh, the, the, the radio station we were on for some reason started doing real audio streaming and it didn't take long for us to realize that all of our phone calls were coming from outside the Phoenix area. Uh, people listening on the internet uh, via something that a lot of people don't, don't even know what real audio was. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, so we just decided, hey, you know, if they can do it, we can do it too. And we stopped paying the radio station and just, um, we didn't, no one knew what a webcast was. Um, the the internet was really young. We had, uh, I remember it was net, texas.net, net387.net, something. I don't even remember what our first URL was, but this was just so long ago. We weren't trying to blaze a trail. We were trying to get something done on a shoestring. And uh, that's pretty much how it's worked all along. Uh, your show has been a massive blessing to me. The reason I've called this meeting, Dr. White, last week I was talking to this lady and we were discussing her, you know, theological background, uh, just having small talk. And she said that she uh, used to meet with Jehovah's Witnesses a lot. By the end of that little conversation, I figured out that she didn't believe in the Trinity. So I came home, I put on this t-shirt, which is a missional wear t-shirt that shows the, you know, little diagram of is God is not God. And it's in Latin. So I'm extra pretentious. And I grabbed a copy of, uh, uh, the forgotten Trinity by Dr. James White. And I, so I took it there and I started discussing it with her. And at the end of the conversation, she said, well, the biggest reason I don't believe uh, in the Trinity is because God is not a God of confusion and he wouldn't tell us something that we couldn't understand. It just kind of struck me that, and I, I mentioned this to her, but I, you know, I said, if God does exist this way as a Trinity and we've been created in a way that, that simply cannot comprehend, uh, in all of its full detail, the way God exists, um, you know, wh wh what would you expect from God to do to lie to say something about himself that's not true, to simplify it, you know, for your feeble mind to understand. But that conversation just kind of emphasized to me once again that uh, one of the shortcomings, maybe more today than usual, is we don't really uh, appreciate, or it becomes a problem in many ways, uh, the distinction between God and us, uh, how different we really are. Yeah, I remember when you uh, you you mentioned on uh, Facebook, and and then you you made the mistake of mentioning that you were taking my book, and that immediately resulted in all of my loving friends uh, warning you uh, about how terrible and horrible a person I am. But there are 
very many people who fall into that category. And uh, that is people who we, we are surprised to discover are not Trinitarian. And when you, when you delve into it, you, you discover that really they, their thoughts of God are, are very much centered upon what they themselves uh, can conceive of. They, they are unwilling to accept any reality of God that is beyond uh, human experience, which is amazing. Many of the people will, many of the same people will confess that God has to be eternal, but uh, you can't, you can sit around and try to imagine eternity all you want. It's not going to work. Our, our minds, our minds are temporally bound and there's a limitation to how far they can go. And so basic foundational truths about God's existence, the concept of immutability. Um, these are, these are things that do not have human analogies in the sense of um, any analogy that we're going to use, any type of example uh, when we come to what the Bible reveals about God that, that we're going to try to use is going to eventually when pushed far enough fall apart. And it seems that there are many people who think themselves so wise uh, that if they find themselves having to confess that they're not, they're not willing to go that far. And, and that's why, especially when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, and we could talk about just basic uh, statements that are sort of uh, held by almost all monotheists uh, together, but especially when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, it, this is a doctrine of revelation. This is, this is not something that uh, someone uh, came up with in some council uh, following some type of complex philosophical reasoning. Uh, there are some people I think that would be more likely to believe it if it was honestly, but the fact that it's revelation takes us out of the picture and, and makes it simply something that we accept because God has deemed it proper for us to understand it. And that gets rid of pride, gets rid of arrogance, that gets rid of man's philosophies and, and accomplishments and everything else. And there's just a lot of people that uh, struggle with that. They want, they want the ultimate uh, elements of their religion to fundamentally be something that, um, that they've accomplished and that sets them apart. And if God's revelation of himself uh, is free, he gets to choose what he's going to reveal rather than climbing up the steep mountain and pulling yourself up over the top uh, to be the first one to accomplish the understanding of these things. Uh, uh, if, if it's, if it's the grace way rather than the works way, uh, there are a lot of folks that are just going to say, well, that, that means that the, the guy down at the grocery store that, uh, you know, cuts the fish could have just as much knowledge of God as me. And i I ain't going for that. And there's just, a, there's a lot of people like that. And um, so it, it really is, it really does force us to recognize uh, what the origin and source of our knowledge of God is. And as Christians, we, we do believe that there are basic fundamental elements that God has revealed about himself that are a part of creation. They're, they're a part of what's around us and within us. In fact, it's interesting. I've, I've always found it interesting that in, Romans chapter one, when, when you have that central uh, teaching on, on Paul's part about the revelation of God and the fact that it gets through, it, it does manage to, to do what God intends it to do. When it says that he's made it known amongst them, uh, that could be translated either amongst them as a group or within them, that is internally with them, within them. And, and you would 
sort of go, why? I wish it was more specific so we know exactly which one it is. Or it might just mean it's both. Uh, because you you have in Scripture both the the reality of the external revelation, the general revelation around us, and what we see in the the beauty of nature and the uh, orderliness orderliness of life, and then you have the internal uh, that is the the human conscience, the the um, the recognition of uh, the fact that we are creatures, and uh, the fact that two year olds even though they don't understand the concepts of uh, uh, spy cameras and uh, everything else uh, still look two different ways before they steal the cookie. Um, how does, how does that happen? Uh, what, what, what explains that? And so I think that revelation gets through and it gets through on multiple, on multiple levels. And so you, you do have that, but I do not believe unlike some people I could point to, but I, I do not believe that that includes the higher elements of God's revelation, uh, which are revealed to us in history, and specifically <clears throat> the result of that being the uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, to which no uh, human speculation or religion has ever even come close. To be perfectly honest with you, in in none of the the triads of deities or anything else are even are even close to what the doctrine of the Trinity actually is. Um, it's sad that a lot of Christians aren't aware of that because uh, it is a topic that is not, it, despite the fact that we say it's central, despite the fact that we say that it is that we, we cannot have fellowship with other people who do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The reality is that of all of the key doctrines of the Christian faith, it's the one uh, that we preach on the least and that I would say most people in the pews of even believing churches, uh, I would say it's the one they're the least comfortable trying to explain to somebody else, which has always confused me uh, a lot. And I, I don't know that I have a really good reason for why that is. Uh, it may have something to do with the, with Western culture. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it shouldn't be that way, but it, but it is. I see a lot of books written on uh, trying to explain the practicality of the Trinity. So, I mean, maybe that's part of the issue is just people don't feel that it's very practical and they don't understand why. Well, well, it is practical, actually. In fact, right. it's it's central to worship. It's central to hymnology. It's central to the gospel. Um, and that's one of the problems. I think it's I think that's why we have such a scattered, very, very scattered um, evangelical theology is because you know, for a number of years, I had the opportunity to teach systematic theology for the old Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary um, before someone who's very, very well known picked up a phone, and made sure I got fired. But uh, anyway, um, I, I just I, I make friends and influence people. So, easily. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, uh, when I when I taught systematic theology, uh, one of the things that I would uh, emphasize is that in the olden days, Systematic theology was considered the the queen of the of the seminary classes because it was like the spoke uh, the, uh, the the hub out of which all the the spokes would be threaded uh, into the rest of the wheel and so it was what gave coherence to uh, your study of the church or eschatology or missions or or whatever else it might be. Uh, with the fundamental change, uh, with with the influx of postmodernism and, and things like that, even into seminary educations, um, and with the the degradation of belief 
that the scriptures are in fact consistent enough with themselves to teach systematic theology. That was the fundamental thing. That's most people don't realize that, that if you actually believe that the Bible is consistent enough with itself to teach um, something called systematic theology, you're in a very, very small minority, very small minority amongst people who call themselves Christians in the West. Uh, Once that, shift took place you no longer had a wheel let alone a a a hub that that could connect everything together and so that's why in most seminaries what's taught in the missions classroom and what's taught in uh, the classroom on ecclesiology and what's taught in the systematic theology classroom there they can be wildly contradictory and that's actually celebrated it's like oh great we're so Wonderfully inclusive and mm-hmm. actually what it results in. And I saw this even years ago. I remember one, one gentleman, he was a little bit older than me who came into seminary, uh, seminary, same seminary class that I was in. And we went through seminary together basically. And we graduated together. And uh, <clears throat> I've often said that he graduated with a master's of divinity degree in, in confusion. Yeah. He, 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 yeah. Had, he had come in knowing what he believed and he left utterly confused, uh, uncertain of anything any longer. And unfortunately that seems to be what's celebrated, uh, today uh, rather than, uh, what used to be, um, uh, understood. So, so the point being that I think that explains why the Trinity is, is not seen as practical and it's centrality. There's a beautiful harmony in the Christian faith that comes about when you, when you actually understand that the gospel is Trinitarian and, and that so much of what the new Testament is talking about is Trinitarian and that knowing who God is um, and knowing the uniqueness of his existence uh, is one of the bulwarks against idolatry and idolatry always tends to try to form God in our image. And so when you don't, understand the uniqueness of father, son, and spirit, their relationship to one another and the roles that are taken by each one in the economy of salvation. Um, when you don't understand that, then it's, it's easy to see where idolatry starts coming in. Yeah. I recently, uh, it, it just, I went through sort of an experience and it, it got me thinking a lot. And, uh, and I started looking at systematic theology specifically on, uh, the nature of God, uh, looking at incommunicable uh, attributes and things like that. And um, it, it just kind of struck me that I'd never really thought through how crazy some of this stuff is and how, uh, how foreign or how just how hard it is to wrap your mind around, impossible to wrap your mind around. I guess that's why they're incommunicable. But like the fact that God has always existed, um, has no beginning, has no end. That's like, catechism question one or two and um and it's but that is mind-blowing stuff uh the fact that god has always existed as a trinity but he didn't choose to exist that way um and a lot of systematics will will say that you know he he necessarily exists the way he does um and it's not that he chose to be this way but it's also that he's he's not this way against his his will or anything like that and um, especially the Trinity. I mean, it, it's it seems like sort of an almost an abstract way to exist. It's just mind blowing. No matter how hard we try, and and this will this will be the reality during the entirety of our human existence. And and I don't I don't pretend to know 
how in the eternal state this will be changed, but I think that it will be in, in some fashion, maybe how we experience time or our understanding of time in relationship to other aspects of God's creation or, or, or anything along those lines. But we, at this point in time, we use language even in our thinking and let alone in our expression of our thoughts, we have to use language to be able to do that. And no matter how hard we try, language is time-based. Um, our verbs have tenses and some of us don't do real well in remembering which ones are which, but they still do. And, and to communicate accurately requires a, a, a careful eye to the progression of events and relationship events in time. And so we can't get past that. We, no matter how hard we try and how many times we say, well, look, when we use human language of God and we talk about the divine persons, when we talk about the being of God, our tendency is to anthropomorphize all of that. A person is a self-contained unit. Uh, being, our being is, is limited in time and space. And so we project that upon God and we, we try and, and, and the best of us uh, do, do far better than others because they're consciously trying not to do these things, not to import these things, but we still can't get, can't get away from it. And I think it's one of the reasons why God has revealed only so much about his uh, existence and attributes uh, because there's only so much that we in the state in which we have been created uh, can actually begin to comprehend and define useful and understandable and, and things along those lines. And so the, the issue of the limitation of our language, you know, uh, like varying from one or the other, that's variation is an issue over time. It's change over time. And when we're talking about the being of God, the being of God does not experience that progression of time, even though he's created time itself. Uh, but he's trans temporal in that, in that, in that sense. And so when we talk about the decisions of God, even when we talk about the ordo salutis and we're talking about uh, the relationship of regeneration and adoption and forgiveness, we automatically temporalize that. We automatically talk about what comes before, what comes after in a linear progression of events rather than a logical uh, relationship of concepts. We just, our minds, that's, that's how we think. That's how we were designed. God knows that's how he made us. And so uh, will one of the uh, things in, in the future in the eternal state be that some of these limitations that we have now will be removed. And hence we have a much deeper appreciation and understanding of uh, certain aspects of God's revelation of his, of his being in person and things like that. I can't imagine that that wouldn't be the case. I, I'm sure yeah. that, that that will be the case, but um, then I also realize the foolishness of going out and writing a book about what that's going to be like, because right. we don't know, we don't have any, any, um, any way of knowing those types of things. And so when it comes, especially to incommunicable attributes and things like that, we are totally dependent upon God's revelation of himself at that point and his goodness in determining that this aspect of my character is something that my people should know and they will be blessed to know and they will be able to worship me aright in knowing. And hence, 
one of the problems that you have in the church is just a lot of people like, well, why, why should I invest such mental energy into some of these things? Well, primarily so that you can worship God right. And let's just be honest (laughs) in our day. um, There was a day when that was considered a sufficient answer because there was a shared understanding that that would be part of the highest good of man would be to worship God aright. Now you have to spend an hour explaining why that's even, why that's even relevant because we are so inwardly turned to our own edification, our own benefit, things like that, uh, that we, we struggle a lot. Uh, I think to have the proper priorities, even in, know, in knowing why we study the things that we study. Yeah, I I heard an, a Lutheran once say that uh, I think it was I think he was quoting Luther that um, that when we try to uh, really pry into the mysteries that God hasn't fully revealed, uh, he said it's like uh, climbing into heaven and trying to peek at God in the shower. I would say about ninety five percent of Luther quotes are not actually <laughs> Luther. Luther quotes. Um, so, yeah. I can guarantee you anything about a shower is definitely not a Luther quote. That's uh, that's a oh, mechanism yeah. right there. But um, I get the idea, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, but I think I think a lot of folks really honestly believe that um, as long as you attach it to Luther's name, then someone's actually going to listen more carefully, uh, and yep. therefore, therefore, whatever is perfectly acceptable to attribute to, uh, to Luther. I'm sure I've done it as well, but there is a, to, to, to use the more systematic theologian, um, Calvin, as we know, there's everything profitable in explicating, explaining anything that's founded upon the revelation of scripture. But when scripture stops speaking, when God says, this is as far as I'm going to go, um, that's where we need to stop as well. And I, over the years have, used as a example of what happens when you don't do this uh, is the difference between Calvin and Edwards. Not that they were alive at the same time. Um, yeah. But um, well, some people honestly would go, Oh really? Uh, they, they argued about something I was like, no, no, wrong centuries. Um, but um, right. uh, both brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds. And yet uh, Calvin refused to get into much of the area of speculative theology because he was committed to sola scriptura and to that statement where God makes them speaking. So must we, uh, Edwards was much more adventuresome. And as a result in attempting to figure out the will of Adam in relationship to the decree of God, he got himself into a contradictory mess because he didn't stop where the light ends, you know, um, where, where the light of scripture ends. He, he thought he could go beyond that. And you're talking about uh, like how, like what the nature of Adam must've been like pre-fall. Is that right. kind of he, he tried, he tried to figure out, he, he thought he might be able to figure out how Adam could be uh, a, a, a fully free autonomous creature and yet the decree of God still determines what he would do. Cause it's, it's oh, one okay, thing. I see. It's one thing in the context of fallen man to talk about that man will always act in a fallen fashion. But what do you do with Adam? Adam, Adam is the Adam's the, we only have two chapters that give us anything about Adam pre fall and it's precious little 
And so uh, Edwards is not the first person to have tried to wander out into the darkness. Uh, but the problem is you just you end up in a in a world of hurt when you when you do that. And so there you have the contrast between two brilliant, brilliant minds, um, very godly minds, uh, disciplined minds. And yet one says uh, we need to recognize that God has the right of saying this far and, and no farther. And if mm. you try to go past that, I, I, I don't know so much peeking at God in the shower as it is uh, just getting yourself into a situation where you're, you're in way over your head and, and, and you can't, you can't extricate yourself. And I think that's what happened with, uh, with Edwards. Well, I guess the, I, I, I think there's just the other emphasis, uh, that I guess that I'm trying to make with talking about peeking at God. It's, it's, it's dishonoring to, because, because at, at some point, if you're going beyond what God has actually said, then you are doing what every idol creator is doing, which is, using human invention to fill in the blanks for who God is because you're guessing at that point. Right. And the human mind guessing at God is a very dangerous game. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't understand why it's dangerous. Uh, it's only dangerous if your ultimate goal is, is, is to know the truth about God. Uh, if your ultimate goal is book sales or uh, TV ratings or whatever else it might be, then that, uh, that guessing thing is, is pretty much par for the course. That's that's what sells. Uh, but if you're truly desiring to be able to uh, communicate to people who God really is, so that He may be worshipped appropriately, then it's extremely dangerous. And um, but most people most people do not think of categories of danger when it comes to theology. Um, yeah. at, at all. Yeah, I mean danger like calling down the wrath of God upon yourself, which is not a very not a very good idea. Um, the distinction. So there's, we talk about a distinction between the creator and the creature. Uh, there's a, a vast chasm because we are, we are different in, uh, in many ways, but we can also say that uh, we are similar to God, right? Similar by grace and condescension. Um, when we talk about what is technically called the, the Imago Dei, um, when we talk about the image of God, we are, we are talking about something that God has specifically uh, chosen to bring into existence. He did not have to do this. He was under no constraint to do this. This is not some reaction uh, to uh, his creation. Uh, I only mention that because I've debated a few open theists and I, I've, I've always, been, always been stunned at exactly how far they're willing to go. In, uh, in their attempt to limit God so that he's not threatening to their particular perspective. But, uh, but the reality is uh, that when we consider what Revelation tells us about God and about man, there are these amazing statements uh, about God's care for mankind and his placement of mankind in a very unique uh, situation. Uh, federal headship, uh, uh, representation uh, and creation. And we look at how small we are in comparison to the entirety of the, of the universe. And it, and it, it's difficult to even begin to understand exactly how any of this is, is supposed to be working. But, uh, we, we see those, we have those things. And on the other hand, we have 
numerous statements that, that talk about mankind being as the dust on the scales and uh, as the flower that, that flourishes in the morning and it fades by the evening and, and all of these types of things. Uh, and so you, you have man's creatureliness, the brevity of his life, the limitedness of his knowledge. These things are all affirmed very, very clearly and carefully in Scripture. And then, for some reason, uh, in light of God's purposes, this exaltation of man and God's uh, specific care and concern for man and man's representation of the creation before God and, and all of this. And, of course, when, you, when we talk about the Imago Dei, when we talk about the image of God, and what that is is in reference to. Uh, there are some odd groups out there that we have to have. We have to talk about how this doesn't mean that God is limited to a body of flesh and bones as tangible as any man's, uh, especially when you wander into Utah or Southern Idaho. Um, you, you do have those situations where you have to deal with some strange interpretations of the image of God. And of course, you need to remember our, our Muslim friends find the utilization of that particular phraseology extremely offensive. Um, even though it's interesting, they actually have a parallel concept. Um, it, it's um, in, in Islam, there's a mithak, there's a, there's a covenant that's made between uh, Allah and Adam. And uh, because we were all in Adam when that was made, it, what they say is we were, we were born upon the fitrah. The fitra is the is the uh, sort of unconscious recognition that we have that God is our God and that we are not Him. So there there is an interesting parallel to that, but because in Islam there is a um, rejection of the intimate revelation that God has made in Christ. Um, the result of that becomes this, this uh, hyper-transcendence where there can be no meaningful interaction uh, between the creature and the creator at all. And so the whole idea of image of God uh, smacks of idolatry in their, in their mindset. But, but when it's properly understood, mm. there's, nothing, there's nothing at all idolatrous about saying that uh, God has made man unique of all of his creatures. We are his creatures. The whole point of the Genesis story is God made all these things and then he made man and man didn't make all these things. Uh, man does not have this creative power, uh, but man uh, has a very special position in the created order. And as a result, a very special responsibility as well. And that there is, uh, as a part of his created nature, there is a capacity for communion uh, with God and worship of God in a way mm -hmm. that no other creature can. And that's, that's really the essence of the Imago Dei, is that creative and created reflection of man's creator and God's intention to have communion with man. And that's why once man shuts that out, once man uh, exchanges the truth of the lie to utilize a Pauline description in Romans chapter one, um, he doesn't stop worshiping. He ends up worshiping the, the creation rather than the creator. And that's yeah. really, that's really where idolatry comes from. Uh, and it's, it's necessary uh, because we don't, 
some people say that we say that the image of God is destroyed uh, by sin. We're not, we're not saying it's destroyed by sin, but it is warped by sin. And that warping is what Paul is really describing in Romans chapter one. Mm. So one of the things I want to, uh, I want to focus on with uh, kind of emphasizing with the show is uh, really helping people to have com- more confidence in their evangelism. Just pass out the four spiritual laws. That's uh... yeah, exactly. So if we take this idea of the creator creation distinction, uh, what are, what are some important parts of this idea that we should be carrying into our evangelism? What are some things we need to emphasize? Well, you've got, you've got to recognize um, that we are dealing now in a society where, uh, for example, <clears throat> uh, one of the, one of the entrees into a witnessing situation today, we, we, there's so many of them. I mean, our, our society is, is so deeply involved with worldview issues right now that, you can't hardly have a conversation with your neighbor over the fence without ve- being very quickly into gospel topics. And so um, when we, when we talk about, for example, marriage, when we talk about genders and sexuality and autonomy and all these things, Jesus taught about all this stuff. And in Matthew chapter 19, he uh, answers a question on the subject of divorce, and he goes back to the crea- creation mandate out of Genesis, and he interprets those passages, and he says, maleness and femaleness are God's gifts and God's intentions from the beginning, and this is what a family looks like, and here is the very incarnate Son of God, not only interpreting Scripture, but laying out these foundations for us, and it's vitally important that we see this, and as I pointed out to one of the folks on the Dr. Drew show on CNN a couple of years ago, <laughs> uh, I think it was 2017, 20, yeah, 2017, 2016, somewhere in there. Um, I pointed out to the, the fellow who was questioning whether Matthew 19 was relevant uh, in our, our culture. I said, well, uh, the difference between you and Jesus is that he predicted his own death and then rose from the dead, and left behind an empty tomb. You haven't done that when you do then you can have equal authority with him. And uh, so he, he hadn't, he hadn't, been, hadn't really had it presented to him quite in that way before. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, he was just left going, I'm not sure what just happened here, but it was, uh, it was interesting. Anyway, our, our current society is completely schizophrenic on the subject because on the one hand, we are autonomous creatures who at eight years of age, according to a certain presidential candidate, uh, at eight years of age, uh, can determine uh, your gender um, just by the functioning of your mind. You may not know what a gender is, but you can do it. This is this is what we we actually we are so wedded to this insanity of autonomy, and that what happens in our mind is has ultimate cosmic significance. The the whole culture has to bow down when my mind says that I'm something and, and everybody around us has to memorize new pronouns and, and just, just, just bow down before each and every one of us when we engage in this type of activity. The same culture that tells us that that mind that makes this determination is not special. It's accidental. It is material. It is 
Uh, chemicals fizzing, it, is, it has no transcendent meaning. It will it ceases to exist and becomes dust shortly after the last heartbeat. And it, 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 it is meaningless in this sense. And yet it's cosmic and yet it's meaningless. It's, it's, it's Aladdin all over again. Uh, and so it, it's, yeah. con- it's, it's fully contradictory. And the, the, the people in our society really cannot uh, get a grasp on what it is we are saying because the vast majority of them are the victims of minimally 12 years. Um, well, not during the COVID thing. Now it's going to go down some, but let's say in the past 12 years of brainwashing and um, being conformed to the image of this world. That's, that's what that is all about. And as a result, they've just had it pounded into their head day after day, after day, after day, I'm a cosmic accident. I do not have a transcendent meaning. Um, I, I want to sing with John Lennon um, uh, from the early 1970s uh, about there's nothing above us but sky and, and there's no religion and, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But I'm still supposed yep. to have this power and capacity and ability to autonomously determine what is right for me and who I am and, and all the rest of this stuff. There's no way to put those two things together. They're completely contradictory. They don't make any sense. It's completely incoherent, but that's where we are. And so uh, if we are called to evangelize in a, the context of a culture under judgment, then it seems real, 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 real obvious to me uh, that we have to be able to present a very clear um, apologetic for the fact that we are God's creatures rather than the creators of everything that is around us or just simply cosmic accidents. And so that's why, uh, of course, you know, him uh, not as well as me anymore, but uh, uh, you know, my dear fellow elder, in fact, I'm not sure if you've seen my, my apologia shirt that I have on here, but uh, uh, Jeff Durbin uh, in his street, <laughs> his street witnessing, uh, is really good at getting people to very in a very quick manner um, recognize the incoherence of their own worldview. Um, yeah. He's very good at, at getting stardust to become offended at being called stardust. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's what all of us have to learn to do. We don't have to use the exact same illustrations. And being a former world karate champion does help you in some ways, uh, you know, in yes. those situations that, that especially when the person's like three feet taller than you or something like that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but still we can, we can learn from that. And I think Jeff would say, you learned some of that from me too. Uh, we can, we can get people to talk long enough to where they, they confess that they know God exists. You know, yeah. you, don't, you don't have to be Cy Ten Kate to do that. Uh, he sort of has a copyright on it, but uh, <laughs> but we can ignore that um, because he's Canadian anyway. So, um, uh, so it's a Canadian copyright, doesn't uh, count right? Which which has no no meaning at temperatures above freezing. So <laughs> it just melts at that point. It's irrelevant. But um, but yeah, that's what we have to do. We have to get people to recognize that they have been deceived. Uh, and they're deceiving themselves and that they don't live in, they don't live this way. They, they, they cannot live consistently with the assumptions that they thought uh, were the uh, proper assumptions to make. 
And that gives us that opportunity of communicating what Scripture says about us being uh, made in the image of God and therefore responsible before God for um, what he has revealed in the world around us uh, and then introduce them if they've never heard of it because (laughs) this wasn't the case 50 years ago, but it is now. Um, The public education system does not exactly turn out Bible scholars any longer. And so uh, people need to know what the Scriptures teach uh, about mankind and about mankind's responsibility and the law and repentance and sin and all the things that go with it. But none of that makes any sense when you're talking to someone who thinks that we're, we're a cosmic accident any more, honestly, than, than a lot of the gospel makes sense in talking to a Mormon who thinks that we are of the same species as God. Um, in each situation, there is a need for bringing b- biblical correction uh, to an understanding of what, what God has revealed about who he is and who we are. Uh, and that's the only way to ground, for example, uh, the reality of God's law and hence the punishment of sin. It's, it's one thing, you know, uh, Ray Comfort's really good at getting people to realize that they're liars and fornicators. And you know, he, he can do that in, in about 31 seconds or something along those lines. He can yeah. get someone to confess. Yes, I OK, that makes me a liar and a fornicator and, and, and everything else. But the next step is, and that means you are worthy of eternal punishment. And that's, right. that's the grounding um, that, that requires an understanding of who God is. And, and yes, we do believe that man is suppressing that knowledge of God. He's actively katakanto and holding down that knowledge of God. But suppression can take different forms, and it can take... Um, you know, atheism is a form of suppression. Religion, false religion is a form of suppression. Apathy is a form of suppression. Uh, the NFL is a form of suppression, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, uh, there's lots of things that you can elevate to the point where you're suppressing the knowledge of God because you're just giving all of your, your attention to something else. And uh, that's what we have to be being used by God is to, is to bring that focus to where it needs to be, prying up those fingers that are suppressing the knowledge of God. And that's going to be, that's, there isn't any cookie cutter way of doing that because people suppress the knowledge of God in different ways. I actually get the impression uh, that people are more willing to, like you you have more confidence to say that uh, Jesus died on a cross and rose again. So the miracle of the resurrection. Uh, And I, I almost feel like the average unbeliever is more willing to hear that statement uh, nowadays than to say that God created the universe, you know, I don't know if you, ha- how much you have to em- emphasize in six days and, uh, and, and all of that, but j- just, I-, I almost feel when I, uh, evangelize people, I almost feel like I need to be like, so bear with me for a second here. God made everything. I feel like that's a harder concept for people to wrap their mind around, uh, than, than some of the more intricate details of, of the gospel. Cause that's like religious stuff. Like, you know, you, you're talking about your doctrines, but, but hold on, you're saying God made everything. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no question that, um, that Darwin is, uh, central to Western, Western thought today. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you, you've been made to be comfortable with, uh, with Darwin and, uh, with the whole naturalistic uh, evolutionary scheme around us. And so, um, you know, the the real the real scandal of Matthew chapter nineteen, for example, 
when I brought that up on CNN, uh, was the whole idea that God is creator, that there is a creator who can actually define these things and say these yes. things. And the idea that we have is, well, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to believe that one man, one woman, uh, type of thing, uh, then, well, uh, God has to demonstrate that that's best for us. We're the standard rather right. than, Hey, God has the right to do it. And we get to, we get to conform to what he says. That's not a part of the way that people think any longer. It really, really isn't. And that's, that's a real problem that we have to deal with. We have to be aware of that. And a lot of us, especially if we spend most of our time talking with other Christians, um, we, we speak Christianese. Right. And we don't recognize the need to lay out those, those fundamental issues. Amen. Well, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll listen to a couple of voicemails, and hopefully Dr. White can help me help me answer a couple of these questions. We'll be right back. This is an ad spot for a podcast that's brand new and doesn't have any advertisers. So I'm going to tell you about some of the things that I have going on that you can help support me uh, in the meantime. Hey, but if you're an advertiser, just keep in mind, right here's a little ad spot that, uh, that could be all yours. Uh, my name is Les Lanfear. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I am, as far as my career goes, currently, I'm a filmmaker. I made two movies. I made a movie called Calvinist, which is about the resurgence of Reformed theology uh, over the past, you know, 20 years or so, maybe. And uh, then I made another movie. It's called Spirit and Truth. And that movie is specifically about uh, worship and what is it that we should be thinking about when we think about approaching God in worship. So both of those movies are available online and you can also get hard copies of it. So if you go to calvinistmovie.com or if you go to spiritandtruthmovie.com, uh, you can access either one of those those particular films. And obviously, if you buy those, you're helping support me, you're helping support the the kinds of things that I do. So uh, so please check those out. Ad spot available. Welcome back to Gospel Riot. I'm here with Dr. White. We're going to listen to some voicemails. What's up, Les? Hey, man. So this is, uh, this is Eric. How is it that a, a truly transcendent God can also be truly imminent? So transcendence and imminence, how that works out in the Godhead. Thanks, man. Thank you, Eric. And yes, Dr. White, that is Eric Yeager, your son-in-law. My son-in-law. He seems like a very good young man. Is that is that the case? I will go ahead and and honestly say Eric Yeager has done more reading in covenant theology than I have. <laughs> so wow. uh, he has he has he's sixteen eighty nine Federalist right. Uh, he's a he's a bright young man and uh, he also has the patience of Job. <laughs> I won't say anything more about that. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> uh, so yes, his question is about transcendence and imminence. Uh, how can this, uh, is there any way to really wrap our minds around this? Uh, what information do we have about the idea that a transcendent God outside of, outside of our experience and, uh, in, well, I mean, why don't, why don't you define those terms? Cause you'll do it much better than I, than I would. Well, that's, a, that's exactly, um, the, the conflict and the tension that you have to attempt to address if you're meaningfully going to interact with our Muslim friends, uh, the serious mm. Muslims is because in Islam, you have complete transcendence. There is no imminence. Now 
there is this one statement in the Quran about God being closer to you than their carotid artery or something along those lines. But, but imminence involves interaction with and relationship to, and all of this goes back to the, the reality that the fundamental difference between Christianity and Islam is that the Muslim cannot begin to conceive of how the incarnation could possibly take place. That's why my favorite debate still, and I know you said be brief, but haha. Uh, my no, favorite, my favorite, my favorite debate still uh, with a Muslim is with Abdullah Kunda, Dr. Abdullah Kunda uh, at University of New South Wales in 2011 down in Australia. Uh, aside from the fact that Abdullah is just the nicest Muslim I know, um, and we would call each other's friends, actually. Um, but and, and in fact, has joined my seminary classes when I was teaching, I was teaching like five different times via Skype at like three o'clock in the morning, his time just to talk to my students. Which I thought was really cool. Wow. Um, but that's still my, my favorite uh, debate with um, with a Muslim. And if you listen carefully to what Abdullah is saying, it gets right down to the 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 objection is if God is transcendent and he imminently enters into his own creation, he ceases to truly be God. And that a and his real argument was that even a perfect human nature would be a disgrace to God to take even as perfect because it's creaturely, therefore it's imperfect. And so that was, that was the closest we've gotten to mm. a serious interaction of what really divides Islam. Cause I don't think most Muslims have realized that. And the only reason that he presented that is because he actually read my book and tried to provide a response based upon trying to understand what we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the, the point being, this is the amazing reality of, um, Halagos sarks againeta. The word became flesh, because what John has said is that the logos is transcendent. The logos is eternal. The logos is the the one through whom all things have been made, and everything is there in the transcendent, complete otherliness of the logos. But the logos became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the unique one from the full of grace and truth. So that really is the amazing thing is that what Christianity says is transcendence is true, but it is not a limitation to what God can do in bringing about his own self glorification in the redemption of a people joining them by grace to Jesus Christ. And that's where the most intimate imminence comes into reality Mm. is Yes, it's prophesied in the sense of foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And yeah, uh, even even uh, Yahweh walking with Abraham by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis would be way too imminent uh, for Islam. Uh, right. But that was temporary. And it, it wasn't. We actually say that the third person of the divine trinity indwells his people. I mean, Wow. Uh, you you can't get any more imminent uh, than that, and yet, what makes those two things possible is the center point of history, the defining element of Christianity, that which out which you cannot begin to understand Christianity at all, and that is the cross. That's where the God Man gives His life. That's where transcendence and imminence meet. That's where holiness and justice meets mercy and love. That is 
It's the center point of history. It's the center point of all of this. It's the center point that makes all of it make sense. Uh, if you don't have a God man giving his life voluntarily on that tree, then there is no answer to any of these things. But if that's really what takes place, then that becomes the answer as to how perfect transcendence freely becomes imminently involved in creation. Not in a, in a, it's not like, it's not like the Gnostics and the light has been trapped in the darkness and trapped in the materials. No, this it's not, it's free. It's right. grace. Therefore it's free. It's freely done. Self-expression. Um, it's an amazing thing. It's, it, it, it's an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. Uh, all right, let's do another one. This is from Caleb. Hey, Caleb from Colorado here. Just calling um, to ask if uh, in creating, does the creator change in any way? I'll just leave it at that. Thanks. Bye. All right, Dr. White. Does the creator change? You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> I, I remember very clearly a systematic theology class I was teaching um, uh, on campus at the old Mill Valley campus in, uh, in Mill Valley, California, uh, Golden Gate Baptist Theological, back in the late nineties, I think that was the most beautiful campus. It's gone now. Sadly, it's been developed and sold and all the rest of that stuff. But, um, and I, I had a very honest student who was really, really struggling with the Carmen Christie in Philippians chapter two, because it just seemed to him that for the second person of Trinity to take on a perfect human nature involves a fundamental change in the nature and being of God. Sure. And if we did not have a proper understanding of what's called the hypostatic union, this is one of the reasons why we have the doctrine of the hypostatic union. If we did not have a proper understanding of this, then I, I can see where that comes from. But when we do understand some of the Christological errors that have taken place in church history, and are still taught by people like William Lane Craig. Um, when you have Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism, uh, and, and how each of these is an imbalanced uh, view of what the scriptures have revealed about Christ. If we didn't have those things, then it would be hard to avoid the conclusion that taking on, because I can't think of anything other than the incarnation, that would be a, a meaningful argument for the actual change in the being of God. Some people argue that there's such a vast difference between the God of the old Testament and the God of the new Testament, that that involves a change, but that, that really requires a lot of ignorance about not only what chesed means in the old Testament, but uh, the God of the new Testament's discussion of destruction of sinners and things like that. There's there, there isn't any change in that way. So normally it's the incarnation. There are, normally somebody is saying there, there has to be change in the being of God um, in light of the amazing assertion. And it is an amazing assertion that the second person of the Trinity took on a perfect human nature. And because of that becomes the God man. See becomes, that sounds like a change and right. that therefore we can be united with God. We are united with the son in a way that we're not united with the father or the spirit spirit indwells us. That's different than, than the other two persons. There's, there's differences in the economic Trinity and how we relate to each of the divine persons, but we are in Christ. And so we are in the father as we are in the son. That's the, the joining point you might say. Um, but again, uh, the, the real issue is did the being of God change by taking on a perfect human nature? And once you understand the hypostatic union, 
Um, that would require Eutychianism. That would require an intermixture of uh, to where the nature of God changes. Jesus is a demigod or a divinized human where there were instead of having that uh, hypostatic union where there is a, there is a intimate connection, but that does not become this or Apollinarianism where you, you uh, take out part of the human nature and replace it with the, with the logos or Nestorianism where you break the, the hypostatic union in part, which eventually leads to adoptionism and things like that. Uh, but when you maintain the biblical balance that is seen in things like the, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, for example, the very terminology that is used there, um, then there is no necessary change of the being of God. There is no um, requirement that the being of God be subject to time and therefore change as far as that is concerned as well. Um, and so you can maintain uh, what has been taught fundamentally in the Old Testament scriptures. But then recognize that what was taught in the Old Testament scriptures does not limit what God can do in the fulfillment of the foreshadowings. So, mm. yes, we can look back with New Testament eyes and look at Isaiah chapter 9 and go, wow, El Gabor, uh, uh, the mighty God, uh, uh, Avi Ad, the, 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 prince of, the, the, the father of eternity. Uh, and then you look at Colossians chapter 1, for by him are all things created. So you see the fulfillment. But it'd be hard to see that just from Isaiah 9. But now looking back with eyes, we can see that. We can maintain everything that the Old Testament said about the, the unchanging purposes of God and unchanging nature of God and everything else. Um, but that doesn't limit God. I mean, that, that's where the Unitarians are coming from, is they're saying, no, that just couldn't have happened. There can't be this, this uh, incredible revelation of, uh, of the second person, the Trinity, and things like that. We can't do that. No, the fulfillment is greater than the foreshadowing was. And um, uh, so that's why the Apostle Paul can take the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and repeat it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and expand it to include the Son. I mean, that, that's jaw-droppingly amazing. Most people have never mm. seen it, but it's jaw-droppingly amazing, and that's why you can do it. Yeah, they can read about that in the, in the Forgotten Trinity. Yeah. Bring it full circle. Um, well, Dr. White, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Is there anything that you're doing that you'd like to uh, bring to attention just in case anyone listens to this show? I'm busily offending uh, everybody, it seems, from what you yourself are saying. <laughs> and so I, I, I get up every morning and go, who can I really, really make angry? No, I don't do any of those types of things. I'm, we, are, we are putting together a, um, a, a really cool um, debate studio uh, because the world has changed and I'm not sure how much yeah. traveling I'm going to be able to do in the future. Um, and so we're, we're using technology. I'm, I'm going to have one of those. Uh, I already have. It's, it's about 10 feet that direction. Um, I already have one of those boards where like, you know, on ESPN, they, they can bring stuff up and put stuff over here and then put that down. And I, I'll get to do all that with, with Greek manuscripts and stuff like that. Wow. that that'll be, that'll be lots of fun. Is that going to make it so you can do more debates also? Right. Well, yeah, we're going to, we're going to be looking at doing debates that way. Um, uh, because there's a lot of folks that want to travel. I, I have issues with traveling the way that's currently set up. and. Uh, uh, so that way it will look so much better than just the zoom debates that we're right. doing right now is because my opponent will be pretty much the same size I am on another screen across the way and, and, uh, super high quality cameras and it's going to be really cool. So 
Uh, that's what we're trying to do so we can start getting back to, I was on, man, I was, I had just hit 174 moderated public debates at the end of last year. And I'm like, all right, here we go. We already had one set up for, uh, for salt Lake and all the rest of that stuff. And then there, there, it just, it just all died. And, um, so we've got to find a way to be able to get that stuff going again. And this seems to be the, uh, uh, the way to do so. So at least until the stormtroopers show up and drag us all away. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. White, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I ap- appreciate all your ministry, all the things that you're doing. And uh, I hope my audience will, will if they don't already know about the stuff you're doing, we'll, we'll check you out. All right. God bless you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, guys. Mm-hmm.